Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Well, hi, listeners. This is Season 4, Episode 23, brought to you by Lifetree at PainReDiculousAttentionToJesus.com. My name is Rick. I'm author, again, of the book Spiritual Grit, which was released in 2018, and The Jesus-Centered Life, which was released maybe a year or two before that, and I'm editor of The Jesus-Centered Bible. And today is the third episode. I almost said fourth, but it's only the third episode in a new series that will extend, we hope, maybe deep into the summer, maybe the whole summer, just depends on the winds, see which way the winds blow. But this series is called Jesus Answers Life's Essential Questions. Julia has shortened it to Essential Questions. Um, It's been happening my whole life. People cut off about half of what I write or say for some strange reason. They say that it doesn't need to be that long. So Julia cut it off, but I'm still calling it Jesus Answers Life's Essential Questions, because that, in fact, is what a special feature in the Jesus-Centered Bible is called. We have about eight or nine special things that we added to the New Living Translation, which is the Jesus-Centered Bible, and these things that we added are all designed to help you to orbit more and more closely around the heart of Jesus. And one of them is I decided just kind of, just brainstorming one day, I thought, I wonder what the most essential questions all human beings have. Just did some research and kind of was able to narrow them down to nine separate questions that sort of encompass any possible deeper question you have about life. And then I thought, what if I went and kind of tried to discover when and how Jesus answered each one of these questions through the four Gospels? And so that's what I did. I just slowly moved my way through the Gospels, stopping whenever I saw Jesus essentially answering one of these nine questions. And then I wrote a little piece every time that happened, and they're in the four Gospels of the Jesus Center Bible now. So uh, we thought it would be interesting to take on each one of these questions, because they're such umbrella questions. There's so many things that you can gather up underneath each one of these questions that really matters to you in life. So if you have a Jesus Center Bible, you've already been exposed to these nine questions, but if you don't, maybe this will pique your curiosity to go out and get one as well. So in the narrowing down to nine questions, we're up to question number three, which is, why do bad things happen? Why do bad things happen? And as it turns out, I wrote a whole book about this question. <laughs> Isn't that lucky? It was first published, um, let's see, I think it was first published about eight years ago, nine years ago, uh, under the name Sifted, and I have since gotten the rights back to that book, it sort of ran its course in that, and, and I, I have such a love for that book. In fact, it will always hold a special place in my heart. It's maybe the most poetic book I've ever written, and perhaps the riskiest book I've ever written. And what I decided to do is get the rights back to it, which I did, and I re-edited it. Uh, You know, if you have almost a decade of living under your belt since you've written something, you see things differently. And so I re-edited the book. I cut it down a little bit, cut out some things I didn't think were necessary anymore, and I put it back out there. And another publisher said, we really love this book and we want to publish it, but we want to change the name. And they changed the name to The God Who Fights For You, which is probably a better title than the first book ever had in the first place. So it's called The God Who Fights For You, and it comes out in about a week from when you're listening to this. So I thought I would give you a little tour of the book today, because it's essentially a longer book-length answer to a very short question, why do bad things happen? And the answer is locked up actually in the new title that this publisher has given it, the God who fights for you. So what we can discover about the hard, difficult, challenging, painful things that happen to us, the deepest thing we can discover in the midst of that experience is that we have a God who will go to the mat for us. He will fight for us. So the whole book is based on one little thing. Jesus says to Peter right after the Last Supper. Now, he says this to Peter, but all of the other disciples are listening while he says this to him, and they also, by extension, Jesus is saying this to them as well, and by extension, he's saying it to us. 
it's a short little burst of, oh my gosh, from Jesus that we don't often slow down and pay attention to. And when we start to consider what he's actually saying, it upends our world. So today what we're going to do is take a slow walk through all well, seven chapters of this book. Not a, actually, it'll, I guess it'll be a fast walk, a little skip along the sidewalk, actually. And the seven chapters correspond to seven phrases in this thing that Jesus said to Peter. And here's what he said. This is in Luke 22, 31-32. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift each of you like wheat. But I have pleaded in prayer for you, Simon, that your faith should not fail. So when you've repented and returned to me again, you'll strengthen your brothers. Simon, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you that your faith wouldn't fail, and that when you return, you'll strengthen your brothers. So buried in there are these seven little phrases. So why slow down and pick apart these, you know, three sentences that Jesus speaks to Peter? Why do this? Well, what's different about Jesus is that when he says something, he's speaking it out of his reality that he is fully human but fully God as well, did a whole series on fully human, fully God. When he speaks, this is where it's coming from. And so if you slow down and pay attention to the details of what Jesus says, he never says anything that's wasted, and he often says things that are deep pools, that if you dive into them and swim down, you keep finding new worlds in what he has said. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to treat Jesus' words like each one is a well, not a spoonful. And we're going to see what we can discover when we slow down and treat them that way. So what he's doing here is he's revealing what's happening in and through the bad things that happen to us all the time. He's uh, giving Peter a sense that there's something going on behind the bad thing that's about to happen to you. In that, he's really showing his heart, which is the heart of an artist who turns ugly things in our life into beautiful things. That's what he does. When you describe Jesus as an artist, he works in the medium of human beings. Human beings are his artistic raw material, and what he does is he takes our broken, messy, ugly, and he refashions it into beauty. That's what Jesus does, and he can't help himself. He's always doing this. So, Again, we're going to skip through these seven different phrases that turn into seven chapters in the book, like a little kid skipping along the sidewalk, and all of it starts with a sort of a what I've called a prelude, something that kind of sets up the context for what's going to happen in these seven phrases. Let me just flip over to the prelude that I've called in the book, Just a Little Night Music. It's helpful to understand, so what was going on? prior to Jesus saying these words. So again, it's the, it's the Last Supper, and Judas has already secretly met with the chief priests and scribes to hammer, hammer out all the details of his betrayal, and uh, he's got all this stuff in motion, and then he's eating together with his friends, knowing what he's already done. And uh, so there's a charged atmosphere already. There's betrayal in the air. And then Jesus' disciples are tasked with finding a, a place to gather for Passover meal, um, and Jesus gives them these kind of crazy, unnecessary, strange and miraculous instructions, you know, go into town, find a guy leading a donkey, follow him to the house, then ask the master of the house if we can meet there. Like, it's crazy. So there's tension, there's craziness preceding this, and then during dinner, Jesus speaks very tenderly to his disciples. He's, he knows what's about to happen to him, and they haven't quite embraced it yet. And so he's embracing their friendship. He's savoring his last meal with them. He's very tender, and he's also very blunt about the suffering he's about to endure. And then at the end, of course, he passes around the bread and the wine, the symbols of Passover. The Passover is really symbolic of God's intervention on our behalf, on symbolic of God's willingness to fight on our behalf to save us from ourselves. And he takes these elements and tells the, his friends that these things are actually his flesh and blood, that he's going to give wholeheartedly to them. And then he tells them after this, this shocking truth, that somebody sitting right there is going to betray him. 
And then that causes an argument, kind of puts a poke hole into the tension that's in the room, uh, and it starts to call an argument because his friends start, you know, kind of debating, is it me, is it you, it's not me. And out of that, then, they start arguing about which one of them is the greatest one there. Now the whole thing's falling apart. (laughs) This tender last meal together is falling apart into an argument about who's better. Then Jesus stops that by telling them that their view of greatness is backwards and offensive, especially in light of what he's about to do. He's about to do the greatest thing ever done in eternity, and he's completely humble about it. And then at the end, he pulls the pen on this little grenade that he says to Peter. It's a devastating little grenade because he is foretelling for Peter that despite Peter's many protests, that he will go down swinging and nothing will keep him from protecting Jesus to the end and that he will lay down his life for Jesus. Jesus is telling Peter that that's not going to happen and that Satan, the enemy of God, has asked for permission to mess with Peter in a major way, and Jesus has tacitly given that permission, and that it's going to get bad for Peter. So that's where all of this starts. You can feel the momentum behind all this. So let's now walk through these seven phrases. The first one is, Simon, Simon. Jesus starts out not by calling him Peter, but by his previous name, Simon. That's the same name that Jesus changed and said, now you're going to be called Peter, the rock upon whom I'm going to build the church. So it's noticeable from the very beginning that Jesus doesn't call him Peter. He calls him Simon. He calls him the name that he's lived under his whole life until Jesus renamed him. So there's a, uh, there's a little film, I think it's about 20 minutes long, something like that, that is such a powerful film. You can go on YouTube and look for it, and I'll have Julia link to it on our podcast page. It's called Validation. It's a short, live-action, about 20-minute film. It's, it's kind of a fanciful film. It's about a man who works in a parking kiosk, and people have to come up to his little kiosk and leave off their key, and then he gives them back their key. And, and when the people come up to his kiosk, he takes advantage of this brief interaction And he tries to pour into them encouragement and inspiration in these short little encounters. And he's so all in with what he's doing, and such like a child in the way he does it, that he's able to break through barriers and past crusty exteriors and actually touch people's lives by doing this. And soon the word gets around that this guy is unusual in the way that he sees people and in the way that he describes people. Like, he finds something about every person he meets to celebrate. And so pretty soon, crowds start showing up just to get a validation ticket from this guy. And pretty soon it makes the national news, and then it makes the worldwide news, and this guy becomes sort of a celebrity that everybody knows, and he's off the charts in his popularity. But there is one person that he cannot break through with, and it's the woman who takes pictures at the DMV. So he has to go and get his license picture taken, and he tries to do the same thing with this woman, and she's a beautiful young woman, but she doesn't want anything to do with what he's communicating. She rejects his encouragement. She resists his attempts to see her well. She will not smile. And in the end, he repeatedly, over and over again, tries to break through with her, and he can't, and he's crushed. He's destroyed in the end. He's a broken man because he just can't break through with this woman. And he stops doing what he's been doing his his whole life. He just stops encouraging people. And along the way, after a passage of time, he begins to pick up a camera, and people kind of randomly ask him on the street, and they see that he has a camera— They ask him if he will take a picture of them. So he starts to do that, and when he's taking a picture of people, he starts to go back into his default setting where he starts to encourage people again. And he reclaims this gift that he has again through the taking of pictures on the street. And eventually he reconnects. He finds out that this girl that had kind of crushed him is taking pictures again somewhere. And Along the way, he has met many people and taken many pictures, and he, and when he takes their pictures, he takes a picture of their smile. 
and often he meets broken people who have no hope in life. And as he talks to them and pours in what he sees about them, they, they start to hope again, and, and then he takes their picture. And so he reconnects with this woman who had resisted all of his attempts, and he's shocked to see her smiling and engaging people the way he once did. And he can't figure out what could possibly have happened to her because he tried everything. At the end of the film, you see her delighted to see him again, and she comes up and hugs him and explains her story, which is really that one of the pictures this guy had taken was of her mother. And her mother had been crushed by disappointment and illness, and her interaction with him had caused her to smile. And the picture of her smile is one that this woman now had. It's the first time she'd ever seen her mother smile. And the breakthrough with her mother led to a breakthrough with her, and something deeply changed in her. And that's how the film ends. The two of them end up getting married at the end of this film. So it's a quirky little film, but the power behind it is the power of this man naming the strangers that come up to him one after the other. And by naming, I mean he, he studies them to reflect back something that's true and good and beautiful about them. So when uh, Jesus starts off with Peter by naming him by his old name, he is sort of prophetically saying that there is something of the old man still in Peter, and that that is about to change, that he's getting his attention by using his given name, and he does it on purpose because it's going to lead to Simon re-embracing his true name, which is Peter. So he starts off by going back in time a little bit with Simon, and he's intending here to take Peter on a journey where he's renamed again. You know, our names, our names are powerful, and our parents have given us those names for a particular reason, but there are several examples where Jesus renames people according to what he sees in them, which was not at all unusual for ancient Hebrews to name their kids projecting onto them a prophetic calling or prophetic future. So the progression that Jesus is leading Peter into here is from his old name to his new name. In this case, your name represents your identity. But first, he's going to take him back into that old identity. He's going to backtrack to a place that Peter really doesn't want to go. So the next phrase is, so it starts out, Simon, Simon, and then Jesus says, Satan has asked. Well, what a strange thing to throw in there. When he says Satan has asked, what he's communicating to Peter is that he's in conversation with Satan, that apparently there's some kind of arrangement where Satan, the enemy of God, can come directly to Jesus, talk to him, and even ask permission for something. So he's revealing to Peter something that's happening behind the scenes. So this is an odd thing for us to get our minds around, because we have two essential assumptions. God is good, and Satan is evil. So why would a good God ever entertain conversation with an evil enemy such as Satan? Why would he do that? Well, it's helpful to understand the nature of Satan and the nature of God's relationship with Satan, and then by extension, the nature of our relationship with Satan. So let's just run through that just briefly. Satan, of course, is a fallen angel. He once worshipped God and, and served him, but felt like God was holding out, and that he wasn't the only one who was beautiful, and that he saw quite a bit of beauty in himself, and thought, I could take this over. And so he convinces a third of the angels in heaven to join his insurrection, and he mounts a war in heaven against God. And in the space of the Old Testament, what we see is an enemy of God who has leverage over the people of God, because the people of God have betrayed him. There has been a break in relationship, and sin has entered the world, and that sin gives the enemy of God leverage in that he can point to their guiltiness and demand that that guiltiness be paid for. This is what in the end, institutes the Old Testament system of sacrifice. This is a temporary way to handle 
which what is essentially a legal complaint about the people of God deserving punishment but not getting it. And so the Old Testament practice of sacrifice, of animal sacrifice, is making something else, another living thing, pay the price, the price of death for the sin and betrayal of human beings. But it's only a temporary solution to this issue. The Trinity has a permanent solution they're working on. So in the end, what Jesus does on the cross strips Satan of all of his leverage and any legal authority he once had to hold things over humanity. So he has no legal authority, but he is shrewd and organized and intent on destroying God's creation. He just has to figure out how to do this without any real authority. So he mounts a sort of guerrilla warfare campaign against the people of God, and his intention is to bring pain and hurt to the heart of God. He doesn't really care about us. We're in the book, I talk about how Satan sees us as simply a landscaping obstacle. We are an obstacle in his way, and so he will mow us down if we are in his way. He's intending to break the heart of God by turning his creation against him and by destroying our lives. So uh, he has no authority, but he, he does, he is quite good at deception, and he's quite good at getting us to agree with his deceptions, and then, and then we use our own authority against ourselves. We self-destruct, essentially. So Satan has never understood the heart of God. He doesn't get why God would love the pathetic, ugly creation he's made. He doesn't get why that is. He doesn't understand grace or goodness. He understands none of that. He only understands his own betrayer's heart. He assumes God and all of us have the same kind of heart he does. And so he can be outflanked and outleveraged and outsmarted because there are some things he simply doesn't understand. Now, on the other hand, Jesus is never leveraged by Satan's deception. Jesus completely understands that Satan has no authority, and he lives like that. He's not impressed with Satan. He's not uh, afraid of him. In fact, he treats his relationship with Satan and the demonic as a normal part of his day. It's extraordinary how many times Jesus engages with demonic forces. It's, it's, it's way more than we would hope that there would be. <laughs> and, and so Jesus treats all of this as normal and is not impressed with anything that Satan's putting out there. We also know this is true about Jesus. He's always telling the truth, and he always goes first. So when he says Satan is asked, he is essentially saying this entity that intends only to steal, kill, and destroy, I'm not afraid of him, and I'm not threatened by him, and I'm not insecure around him, so it's okay if I listen to what he has to say and then make my call out of that. And in this case, Satan is intending to mess with Peter in such a way that Jesus sees a good opportunity in what Satan wants to do. He sees how he can use this for Peter's benefit, and so he essentially says to Satan, okay, you can do what it is you want to do. And the next, the next phrase is, what, well, what does Satan want to do? He wants to sift Peter like wheat. It's a common phrase, sift like wheat, but because we're not a, a agricultural people anymore, we don't really understand what sifting really means. But the people that Jesus was talking to knew very well what sifting meant. Sifting is a process in the ancient world. I'll tell you what it looked like in the ancient world. To sift wheat, you had to first collect the wheat, and then you put it on a threshing floor where you beat the tarnation out of the wheat. You just beat it until it's destroyed, because what you're trying to do is separate the kernels of wheat that are nutritious from everything else on that wheat stalk. And so the kernels of wheat are more solid than everything else on the wheat stalk. So when you beat the wheat stalk, you beat away the chaff, the weak uh, parts of it that aren't really nutritious, and what you're left with are these kernels. Um, and so what the sifting process essentially goes like, it's very simply this. You beat it for the purpose of separating what is nourishing from the rest, and then you as part of that separation, you reveal those kernels. 
which are the only thing nourishing about the wheat stalk. So that is essentially how sifting works. So when Jesus says to Peter and to the other disciples, and now by extension to us, Satan's demanded to sift you like wheat, he's really saying Satan is demanded to beat you up, to separate out what is true and what isn't true in you, and then he wants to reveal something in you. Now, here's the difference. Satan wants to reveal to God that at the heart of Peter, he's essentially only doing what he's doing based on a transaction. So if you think back to the whole book of Job, Satan's mindset with Job was exactly the same he has with Peter. He says to God in the book of Job, look, the only reason these people follow you is because you do good things for them. You stop doing good things for them, and, and they'll stop obeying you because they don't really love you. You're just Your whole relationship with them is based on rewards. Take away the reward, and they'll leave, you know, because they have no heart toward you. This is Satan's assumption about us. And so God says to him, well, have you considered my servant Job? God is the one who suggests to Satan that he mess with Job. And oh boy, does Satan mess with Job. He does everything you possibly could do to a person to destroy them without actually killing him. And Satan is sure when he does this that Job will eventually reject God and turn from him because, of course, the basis of that relationship must be that as long as things are going well, he's good with God. Well, what he discovers is that he's wrong. In the end, Job essentially says, you know, God, even if you slay me, I'll still love you. And at the end of the Job, we get this remarkable revelation that Job, even though everything's been taken from him, he can't stop loving God. He can't stop loving him. Well, this same sort of story narrative plays out when Satan demands to sift Peter. He's wanting to reveal in Peter's heart the bankruptcy of his heart, and that Peter will run and betray and stay away. Um, he will reject Jesus permanently in the end, because that's what's really at the core of his heart. And Jesus sees this as an opportunity to reveal something in Peter that is the opposite of what Satan believes. He believes that there is something strong and, and deep and permanent in Peter's connection to him, and he believes that will be revealed through this sifting process. It may look bad in the beginning, but wait till you see what happens in the end. Jesus is banking on Peter's heart and how his heart has been captured by Jesus's heart. That's what he's banking on. And so he's essentially agreeing to this whole scheme of Satan because he wants to once again show that this relationship he has with his people is based on something much deeper than a transaction, and Peter is going to live this out. And by extension, we live this out in our relationship with God as well. Well, the next phrase is, so he says, Simon, Simon, Satan is asked to sift you like wheat, and then comes this transition— he says, but I have prayed for you, Simon. Now, in the book, The God Who Fights For You, I take this entire chapter and I focus really not on the fact that Jesus is going to pray for Simon. We'll talk about that in a second. Most of that chapter is really focused on that one little word, but. So if you think about what Jesus is saying, Simon, Satan's asked to sift you like wheat, but. So what comes after the but? <laughs> what is Jesus going to say now? This is the, a, a tense transition. He's setting this up as, here's what's been asked, but here's what I'm saying. So everything rides on what Jesus is about to say after that word, but. Now, what he says here is, I have prayed for you, Simon, which is essentially he's saying, I'm going to fight for you. He could have said, Satan's asked permission to sift you like wheat, but I've told him no. Or, but I've said, you know, uh, not Peter, someone else. But he doesn't say that. He says, but I have prayed for you. So he's essentially saying, I've said yes to Satan, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to intercede on your behalf that your strength wouldn't fail. And we'll talk about that in just a second. That I'm going to fight on your behalf. I am not going to leave you. But here, this but is really brutal, if you think about it. If what you hope for is when the enemy of God approaches Jesus and says, I want to mess with you, 
I want to mess with Peter, or I want to mess with Rick. What we hope for is that Jesus is a, by no means, I will defend him. I will not allow you to do this, because I have the authority not to allow you to do this. And yet he says tacitly, yes, go to it. Uh, I had this time in my life when um, I was over busy. I had too many responsibilities going on. I was stressed. My wife, we didn't know it yet, but she had an undiagnosed chronic lung disease. We didn't know why she was having these symptoms that she was, but she was exhausted all the time. We were trying to figure out why. So all of the things that were happening at home rested on me as well. We had two young girls at the time, and uh, this was like a tipping point moment that happened for me. The girls were supposed to be at a birthday party. I had work to do because I was just scrambling to get everything done in my life. I was going to take them to the birthday party, and while they were there, I was going to sit off to the side and work on my laptop. So I had my computer bag over my shoulder, and I'm rushing to get out uh, in time, and my kids are in the car in the garage, and I'm rushing into the garage with my computer bag on, and I had a cup of coffee in my hand, and I forgot that there were two stairs down into our garage. Have you ever done that where you're expecting to just walk uh, on a flat surface, and all of a sudden, boom, I hit the concrete ground of our garage so hard. I spilled the coffee all over myself. I was worried I ruined my computer, and I hurt myself. I was in a lot of pain. And so all of this tension and frustration, and now the pain just built up, and I just screamed in that garage, and it acted like an amplifier. All of the neighbors could hear me screaming, and my kids are in the car with their eyes real wide, like, oh my gosh, what's happened to Dad? Well, we had some new neighbors that had just moved in a couple weeks ago, and they heard me screaming, and they ran across the street into our garage, and I had not even met them yet. And they see this guy on the garage floor with coffee everywhere, screaming, and and they're like, oh. <laughs> so I tried to tell them what was going on, and they very graciously said, you know what? You, you look injured. We will take your daughters to the birthday party. Just tell us where it is. So they graciously took my two girls to the birthday party. In the middle of this, trying to help them understand what was going on, my wife comes to the door in her robe and is like, oh my gosh, there's the new neighbors. And that's how she met our new neighbors. And so I crawl back inside. I'm angry inside. I'm really, I, I just, I've had it. And my wife very appropriately says, I'm getting out of your way right now. And she went back to the bedroom, and I sat in a chair and just started crying. Uh, in, in between my cries, I was angry, and I had an angry prayer with God. And in the midst of all this crying and anger, I heard the voice of Jesus say to me something like this, hey, Rick, I pulled the trigger. And what I took from that, he was speaking metaphorically, obviously, I understood immediately what he was saying. He was essentially saying, you're on a terrible, destructive path, and I am going to use this experience that you've just had of pain and embarrassment and shame to stop you in your tracks and to get you to consider the path that you're on and how you got here. Now, all of that made sense to me in a moment when he said, I pull the trigger. And then I really started crying because I experienced what he was doing in that moment as love. He was using my circumstances to stop me before I did something worse. And I was grateful in that moment. And that started a path for me of recognizing that I can't exist or function well no matter what pressures I'm under without taking quiet time just to be with him, which I wasn't doing at that time. So it reoriented my whole life. Well, when you think about the word but and how brutal that is, that's the but I felt in that moment. He was essentially saying, uh, I didn't stop this from happening, Rick, on purpose, because I can work with this. I'm an artist, and you're headed in the wrong direction, and I'm going to use the leverage of this situation to help reorient you, which is what he did. So the next phrase, here we are, Simon, Simon, Satan's asked to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you, Simon— and what does he say next? That your faith would not fail. So what is he praying for with us? That our faith wouldn't fail. So what's important to consider here is what does faith mean? Because if Jesus is praying that our faith wouldn't fail, what does he mean when he says faith? So you remember the Charlie Brown Halloween special where Linus is waiting in the pumpkin patch for the great pumpkin to show up? 
there's a scene in there that it's perfect to describe the way we typically think about faith. Linus is waiting in the pumpkin patch, and he's convinced Sally to forego trick-or-treating to wait for him for the great pumpkin because, oh my gosh, they're going to get so much greater stuff than you get trick-or-treating if they're actually there to greet the great pumpkin who comes to the most sincere pumpkin patch. That's the pumpkin patch he shows up for, and Linus is convinced that this pumpkin patch is the most sincere, so Sally sacrifices everything to wait with him for the great pumpkin. And they wait all night, and there's no great pumpkin, and the other kids come back from trick-or-treating, and Sally just blows a cork. She's like, look at what I've missed out on to wait for you in this stupid pumpkin patch. I am out of here. And Linus is trying to plead with her to stay and not leave. And in the midst of him kind of trying to reassure her that, in fact, the great pumpkin is going to show up, he says, if the great pumpkin shows up and you're not here, then you will miss out. And then he stops himself. And he goes, oh my gosh, I said if. I meant when. I meant when. Oh no, I may have screwed the whole thing up. I've shown that I don't really believe he'll show up. I meant when, when. That's the end of the scene. And I love that because that's often how we think about faith. We think of it almost like it's a Harry Potter spell, that we have to say it just right in the right intonation and to get what we want. That's what Linus is saying there. He's saying, oh no, I screwed up how you're supposed to do this. I didn't get the spell right, and now the great pumpkin's probably not going to show up. Well, that's not how Jesus thinks about faith. Faith to him is a deep belief in his heart. Our faith, the faith that he wants in Peter not to fail, is that Peter will continue to trust the heart of Jesus in the midst of his sifting, while he's feeling beaten and separated and revealed, that his faith in the heart of Jesus would not waver. A lack of faith is really our refusal to believe in who Jesus is. And in John 16, he explains that that's our basic sin. In John 16, 8 through 9, he essentially says, if you want to find the root of all sin, it is in your refusal to believe in who I really am. So faith is really, uh, very simply, our belief in who Jesus really is and the fundamental goodness of his heart. So my wife, Bev, she has this chronic lung disease, and she has an, an infusion, an IVIG infusion, every three weeks. And this is what keeps that disease at bay. And that means that every three weeks, she has an IV stuck into her hand or wrist. And she's had this done for 12 years, every three weeks now. And no matter how often she's had it done, you can probably relate to this, when somebody is sticking a needle into your hand, there is a moment of dread and pain that's involved in that. So she schedules her infusions for a day always when I'm working at home because I can help while she's having these infusions. She has these done by, at home with a home nurse. So she schedules them for then so that I can be with her. But the primary reason she wants me to be with her is to hold her hand right before they stick that needle into her hand, because holding my hand communicates to her that there is hope on the other side of this needle, that it's going to be okay, that my hand in her hand says, past the point of that entry of that pain, I will be with you, and my hand will stay with you until the other side when it doesn't hurt again. And this is essentially what Jesus is saying to Peter, that, Peter, all this is going to happen but I'm praying that your faith won't fail. He's essentially saying, I'm going to put my hand in your hand, Peter. While you're going through this, I'm going to be with you, and the squeeze of my hand is going to say, your faith in my heart won't fail. That's what I'm going to be interceding on your behalf for. So we often think about what faith in Jesus means to us, but we don't often think about what Jesus's faith in us means. And this is what Jesus is expressing to Peter. I have faith in you. I know that my heart is deep in your heart, and it's going to cling to my heart, to the, your belief in my heart, all the way to the other side of this sifting. So the, uh, the next phrase, Simon, Simon, Satan is asked to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you, Simon, that your faith would not fail. And when you have turned back, so there you see Jesus' faith in us, when you have turned back. So he's saying to Peter, it's not an if to me, 
I believe that you will turn back. I know you will. I see your heart. I'm invested in your heart. I know that in the midst of this, you are going to persevere and come back. And we see at the end of the Gospel of John, after the resurrection, when Peter and the disciples are on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and they're eating fish together with Jesus, and Jesus kind of takes Peter off to the side just for a moment and asks him three times, do you love me? And the third time, it really hurts because Jesus is surfacing again this, this, the pain of Peter's betrayal. But it's in this moment where what Jesus says to him at the Last Supper comes true. When Jesus says, when you have turned back, Peter, well, in this moment, Jesus is trying to prove to Peter that he has turned back, that he has come back to him. And that third time that Jesus says that he loves him, he says, Jesus, you know I love you. And that's true. Jesus does know he loves him. And he knew it when he said, when you turn back, Peter. He already knew what Peter was going to do because he trusted in Peter's heart. The last thing he says, let me go through the whole thing again here. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you, Simon, that your faith would not fail. And when you've turned back, what? What happens after the when? He says, when you've turned back, you'll strengthen your brothers. You'll strengthen your brothers. Here we see the outcome of the sifting, the outcome of why do bad things happen? Why does God allow those bad things to happen? Doesn't he understand how painful and hurtful this is? Well, of course, we live in a broken world, and we are broken ourselves, and he can't fix all of that, this side of heaven. What he can do is, as an artist, take our ugly, broken things— and make them into beautiful things, things that show the glory of God, things that reflect the kind of heart of God that Satan doesn't believe exists and doesn't understand in the first place. He's going to show that Peter's strong heart will, in fact, be the foundation of the church in the future. This sifting has to happen because Peter has things to give. I had a dream when I was, just before I started writing this book, I had a dream one night that seemed so real to me that I woke up thinking I was still in the dream. Have you ever had a dream like that? In my dream, I dreamed I was on this barren, kind of windswept hill. It's in a place sort of like the the wilderness of Montana, you know, just wide open spaces as far as you can see, mountains surrounding you. And I'm on this hill, and I see down below the hill but on its way riding up to the top of the hill where I am, this band of horsemen, um, and they're galloping toward me. And they come frothing to a stop at the top of the hill where I am, and I'm still on the ground, so I see, I'm looking up and I see these tall horses with these tall men, and they all look like men who are experienced and rough and ready, and they're warriors. They exude a sort of a relaxed confidence, and I feel so small and insecure uh, sitting there on the hill. And I noticed that the lead writer is actually Jesus. And Jesus is looking down at me with a tenderness, and he extends his hand down to me and says, we have an extra horse. Why don't you mount up, son? I want you to ride with me. And I can't believe what I'm hearing. And I'm also simultaneously thinking, I don't even know how to ride a horse. (laughs) And if we go that fast, as fast as you just came up here, I'm going to be thrown I'm awkward, and I don't know what I'm doing, and I'm not even sure I can, but I can't resist his outstretched hand. And I grab his hand, and he hauls me up and pulls me up onto the empty saddle of this horse, and he uh, shouts, and the horses wheel, and off they run, and my horse follows, and I'm just hanging on for dear life, just hoping I don't fall off. And the wind is just slapping my hair back, and and I'm smiling (laughs) now. I'm as alive as I've ever been, and then I wake up, and this is the dream that I had. Now, was it real? Uh, Was it not real? Was it just what I hoped for? Is it a prophetic dream? It doesn't really matter to me. What that dream communicated to me is my deepest hope. That's more than anything else in my life. What I hope for is that dream to come true, that I would be that I would clasp the outstretched hand of Jesus and be hauled up into a horse next to him, and off we'd go into whatever adventure he had planned for that day. 
And that adventure would certainly involve setting a captive free somewhere, because that's what Jesus does all day long, and that he was inviting me into that pursuit with him, that he wanted me, that I was wanted, not just as a servant, but on a horse next to him. And he didn't care that I didn't know how to ride. He just wanted me with him. So what he was really wanting here is for me to participate in giving the strength that I have to others. So in the book, I talk about going into the cave on behalf of others. That phrase really comes from one of my favorite film trilogies of all time is Lord of the Rings. And there's a key scene in the Lord of the Rings trilogy of films where Aragorn, the hero, knows that he must do a hard thing. He must go by himself into the mountains, into a, a cave full of dead warriors who are now ghosts. And he's going to recruit these ghosts to fight on behalf of the good, to defeat the evil. And he's literally walking into a mountain, a mountain of death. So he sneaks away from the camp to go off to this mountain alone and recruit these dead wraiths to the side of good. And his two best friends spy him slinking out of camp, and they go with him. And they vow that they're going to go with him into this cave. And they come to the mouth of the cave, and you can smell death coming out of the cave. And over the top of the cave, it says something like, all who enter here will die. This, this cave is full of death. You'll be full of death, too, if you walk in here. And they read it, and the horses are frightened by this and run away, and there's a palpable sense of fear in front of the cave. And Aragorn looks to his friends, looks back to the mouth of the cave, and says, I'm not afraid of death. And he goes into the cave, and then his friends follow him. Well, he's going into the cave of death on behalf of humanity at that moment. He knows that everything rides on whether or not he can uh, recruit an army that can defeat an overwhelming evil. And he is willing to go into this dark place full of death on behalf of others. And that is essentially our calling in life, to go, on, go into dark caves on behalf of others. And Jesus knows, with Peter and with us, that we will be unwilling and unprepared to go into those dark caves if we haven't really been sifted, if we haven't come face to face with our own brokenness and emptiness, if we haven't tasted death in ourselves, a kind of a hopelessness. And when we have what is revealed and what is left, that kernel of wheat which is left, is our undying, ruined for conviction about the heart of Jesus that what's left in that kernel is what's left in Peter after his sifting. And when Jesus says, do you love me three times, he repeats the same answer, then go feed my sheep. What he's saying is, offer your strength on behalf of the sheep. Take care of my sheep. He's saying your strength now is something that can be given broadly and deeply to those I love. And this is, in the end, what he wants to reveal in us, the strength that has always been there, but can only be used and given away when it's revealed in us. And that's essentially what he wants to do. So why do bad things happen to us? Well, um, they don't happen to us because Jesus enjoys watching us struggle with hard, bad things. The truth is, bad things happen to us because we live in a broken world. And when we are in the kingdom of God with Jesus, there won't be any more tears. There won't be any more hardship. And we won't be struggling against the bad things that happen to us. But here we do. And what he does as an artist is reveal us and reveal the strength that we have. So to close off today, um, what do we do? Um, how do we respond in the midst of the hard things that, were hap that, that happen to us? Here are four things. The first thing is see the sun. So see Jesus. Pay much closer attention to the per person of Jesus than to his principles. Find his heart, embrace his heart, taste it and see how good it is. Get it deep into you so that in the midst of the hard thing, just as Peter did, you might be doubtful and unconvinced about everything in your life except for one thing, that the heart of Jesus is good. So see Jesus for who he is. The second thing is trust in who he is. 
like the centurion who asked Jesus to heal his sick servant and told him, you don't even need to come to my house, just say the word and I know my servant will be healed. That is trust. It's trusting in who Jesus is and what he's capable of doing. And that trust is anchored not in getting the spell right. That trust is anchored in what we know to be true about him. Not, by the way, what we hope he can give to us. Third, trust in what he does. So get to get very familiar with the things that Jesus does and why he does them. How does the Trinity relate to each other? And by extension, how does the Trinity relate to all the creation? This way of relating that we see in the Trinity then becomes our passion because we respect and admire the Trinity. So trust in what Jesus does. And then the last thing is align ourselves with him. What does it mean to align ourselves with him? It means, I think, to reach out and grasp the hand that is extended down to us from Jesus, who is mounted on a horse. Grasp that hand and let him pull you up. Align yourself with him. Ride with him. When he invites, say yes. It's sort of giving our own sort of blood pledge to him. It's a proclamation gauged by what we do, not so much by what we say, that broadcasts that we are all in with him. And there you have it. If that's you, if you want to broadcast that you are all in with him, then consider joining the Pigs page. It's a special invitation-only Facebook page that we created for people who want to be a part of a community that maybe you're not all in yet, but you want to be. Maybe you're just like Peter. Yes, you know I love you, Jesus, but I know that I've also screwed up. But at the depth of my heart, I love you and I want to be all in with you. Well, if that's you, then I invite you to click on the link on our podcast page. That will signal your request to be invited in, and then I'll respond to it, and you're in. You'll be part of the community. Be a part of the others who are up on those horses riding away on an adventure with Jesus. There's nothing better than to be a part of a community of people who are on an adventure together. So I invite you to do that. Again, these are what we've walked through today is a little tour of the book, The God Who Fights For You, which will come out in about a week. So here's one thing you could do for me, gang. Um, There will be a link on the podcast page for this, but you can also just go to Amazon and look for The God Who Fights For You, and you might have to plug my name in there, too, because the book's not released yet. So plug all that in there, and it'll come up. One thing you could do is pre-order it. Order it now. Um, That always helps a book to get a kind of a leg up. So I encourage you to go out and get a copy of the book. If you've already read Sifted back in the day, I think the way that I have re-edited this book will kind of engage you differently than the old one did. And if you've never read it, buy a copy for yourself. And if you know someone who's struggling with why is this bad thing happening to me or struggling to overcome a great challenge in their life, this is a perfect book to give to them and a surprising book to give to them. So I encourage you to go out and um, give the book a leg up. It's a way of spreading hope in the world for those who are living in their own dark caves. Gang, thanks so much for uh, listening today. Thanks for all of the ways that you're part of this community and you make your voice known. Again, you can find out more information on PayingRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. You can look for Season 4, Episode 23. That's where you find all the links that we'll put up there for this episode. This, again, is Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. It's a podcast from Lifetree. Subscribe to us on iTunes or Google Play or wherever you get your podcasts, and we'll talk again next time.